You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. So today is uh, Epiphany Sunday, which means to reveal or to manifest. Uh, So we're going to enter into a new series, uh, and and I'm excited about this new series. Uh, It's, oh, there you go. It's called The Liberating Wisdom of God. We're going to spend the next uh, eight weeks uh, learning to see and understand the wisdom of God. So we're going to look at Proverbs, we're going to look at Ecclesiastes, we're going to look at a little bit of Job, and we're going to look at how all of the wisdom literature of Scripture is summed up in the person of Jesus. That's where we're going to go. We good? Yeah? No? No? We're going to go somewhere else instead? Yeah, that, like, that's, that's where we're going to go. So I encourage you, read the Proverbs. Like, read the Proverbs, understand its wisdom literature. Read the Proverbs, understand that it has a sporadic nature to it. Read Ecclesiastes, the most hopeful book you'll ever read. Not really. Um, vanity, vanity, meaningless, meaningless. Life is just meaningless. Man, I'm just in that mood. Dave, don't we feel that way? We're just, oh, forget it. You know, in other words that we can't say in church. But nonetheless, we have the wisdom literature that we're going to embrace um, and see how the wisdom of God is manifest, summed up in the embodiment of God's wisdom, who is Jesus. Jesus is the Word made flesh, God's divine logic embodied. So Jesus is what wisdom looks like. And so we're going to look at Jesus, and I hope you thought about that. Jesus is what wisdom looks like. You want to know what it means to be wise? Watch Jesus. You want to know what it means to be wise? Listen to Jesus. You want to see where the Proverbs make sense? Come with skin on? See Jesus. We're going to do that. But today we're going we're gonna to kick it off a different way. Eugene Peterson said, when we submit our lives to what we read in Scripture, we find that we are not being led to see God in our stories, but our stories in God's... Yeah, our stories in God's. God is the larger context and plot in which our stories find themselves. Eugene Peterson was a prolific and humble pastor and writer and theologian. Just a humble man. Uh, during my one month, uh, sabbatical, I read his memoir called Pastor, and it was just it was extraordinary, and it was life-giving. This man lived his words from what I see, and I know people who knew him, and that's what they say. They say he lived his words. Too many times we try to find God in our own story and forget that our stories are found in God's, and that's a different way of seeing the world. This quote has profound implications practically in terms of our ethics, our morality, our politics, our views of, of peace and love and violence, profound implications if you really listen to the quote. And perhaps too many of us are looking to find God in our own story rather than their, our lives and His because in the end, and this would be maybe what Peterson is saying, because in the end we're not really submitting ourselves to the teaching of Scripture. We're memorizing it, but not internalizing it. See, the gospel is God's story, and it speaks of what He's done and His doing in our world in and through Jesus as the liberating King and Lord. The gospel is the story of Jesus. It's not I get to go to heaven when I die. It's that Jesus is King. And the kingdom has been made available to all of us. We get to enter in where we get forgiveness of sins and life forever. The gospel is not we get to go to heaven when we die. The gospel is we get God. We get God revealed to us. We get life with Him forever. Beginning now. God's story is not about us but involves us. But not only involves us, it includes us. It's a story that shapes the movement we call Christianity and this people called the church. It's why we have hospitals. Because the people of God took it seriously. It's why we have orphanages. Because they were shaped by this 
lives, Lord. It's why there are good things happening in the world. There are times when the Christian church lost its way and inflicted violence and inflicted suffering. But when the church was most faithful, she inflicted things of healing, things of peace. And it's the story that should influence all we do. It should renew our minds, strengthen our character, and establish our purpose. It's a story that should change how we think about the world and our place in it. And there's the thing, as I spend time with, with, with Christians and even thinking about my own life and talking about life and faith, I'm convinced that for some of us, our inability to change isn't a lack of desire or effort. I find that most of us want to change. Most of us want to know what it means to intimately love God and live with a God life, with a with God life. You know, this life with God as disciples of Jesus. And I think most people want spiritual growth. Most people want to mature in their faith and want to be transformed. And I'm growing increasingly convinced that the problem is not that we do not want to change or that we're not trying to change, but that we don't know how to change. And so we strive and we scratch and we pray harder. We read the Bible more and yet nothing changes. The lust is still there. The doubt, the insecurity, the ideology, the boredom with life, the anger, the pride, the secret sin, it's just all still there. And we think we can change ourselves. Because we've embraced some misinformed ideas. What I'm going to call false narratives. See, too often when we decide to change something, we muster up our willpower. Everybody say willpower. And set out to change our behavior. And we nearly almost always fail. You see it in New Year's resolutions, right? And then Facebook sends you messages rubbing it in, right? Most of us assume that we failed to keep our resolution simply because we lost our willpower. So we begin to see ourselves as weak or a failure, especially if we failed to keep something significant or failed to change. And the reason we fail isn't a lack of willpower. In fact, the will actually has no power at all. Seriously, the will is the human capacity to choose. That's the way it's understood. It's just the human capacity to choose. Should I wear my glasses today or not? Yes. Like, should I eat donuts for breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Yes. The will, as we call it, is the hinge. Everybody say hinge. It's the hinge on which decisions are made. If we could look inside our human bodies, we would not find the will. The will is our human capacity to choose, and it's very important, but it has no power. The will responds to the influences of something else. Let me say that again. The will response, responds to the influences of something else. The will's just a hinge. Think of it this way. A horse does not choose where to go, but goes in whatever direction the rider tells it, Right? Because, you know, I ride so many horses, I know this analogy really real. Ride horses all the time. Probably should choose something I actually know. I've ridden a couple of horses a couple of times. It didn't end well for me. So maybe it's not, well, maybe I'm just a terrible influencer. The will works like that. The will is the horse. 
And instead of one writer or influencer, it has primarily three influencers. The mind, say the mind, the body, and social experiences and environments. Social experiences and environments. The will is neither strong or weak. Like a horse, it has only one task, to do whatever the influencers, the mind, body, and social experiences tell it to do. Change is not an issue of the will. It's an issue of modifying the influencers. That's why in addiction recovery, we talk about changing persons, places, and things. It's an issue of modifying influencers. The good news is that God has wired us to control these influencers. We have control over them. We have the power to exercise control over them. We can have new ideas and new practices and new social experiences and new social environments, and we can adapt them, and then when we do, change happens. So Jesus, so Jesus understood. Jesus understood how people changed in mind, body, and social experiences and environments. And that's why he called us to his gospel. That's why the gospel is an announcement, an announcement about a story, a story of hope, a story that offers a new understanding of the world, that then when we step into it and embrace it, it has the power to change us. And Jesus often taught in stories. He didn't teach in facts and figures. He didn't give three-step sermons. You ever notice that about Jesus? I don't know why his preachers think that that's what Jesus did. Jesus never gave three-point sermons. Jesus told stories that required the listener to listen to the story and step inside the story and decide whether or not the story is what they want to live in. That's what Jesus did. He offered a story. He said, the kingdom of God is like. He said, you want to know God's love? He didn't just talk about God's love in static ways. He talked about God's love in a story. Well, there was his dad and there was his son. You know how the reign of God works? It's like a mustard seed, that. That's what Jesus did. He didn't teach in three-point sermons. He taught his story because he wanted us to determine whether or not we wanted to live in a different story. And we have to make that decision. That's the will. We get to choose which story we live by. Do we live by the story of the world? Do we live by the story of the gospel? Do we live by the story of violence or do we live by the story of peace? Do we live by the story of fear or do we live by the story of love? We do get to choose that. We do. That's a choice we can make. All the time. And if you think about it, it makes sense. How do you speak about your life? Many times we speak about our lives through stories relating to our past. How do we remember significant events in our past? Through stories situated in time, not facts. How do we relate to these things? Through stories situated in time, not facts. How do we communicate them? Through stories situated in time, not facts. We use facts, but we use them in the form of story. And we situate it in a particular season of life. That's how we talk about our lives. You may not remember the details of all the different parts of the story, but you remember who was there, what was said, how you felt, approximately when it was, and then you communicate that in the form of a story. That's how we talk about life together. In casual conversation. Many of us may not be able to mention two Beatitudes, but almost all of us can speak of the story of the prodigal son. Think about it. It's how society works too. Stay with me. Society would consider certain days and, 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 and weeks and times of the year as sacred observances, meaning that these are days that deserve particular honor and remembrance. If someone says D-Day, raise your hand if you know what D-Day means. If someone says 9-11, raise your hand if you know what that means. And we remember it not by facts, but we remember it by what? Story. Matter of fact, we don't even know the facts of many of these things, but we know the story. And if we experienced it firsthand, then it's deeply formed who we are. 
Many of us even know exactly where we were on those days. We observe holidays like Martin Luther King Jr. Day or Memorial Day or July 4th. And these distinctive days in the calendar give at least some sort of influence to our understanding of life as a human being, specifically in the United States, specifically in Virginia, specifically in Williamsburg. And it also influences our family traditions. If you try to go to bank on one of these federal holidays, what do you get? Nada. It's like going to Chick-fil-A on Sunday. Radical disappointment. I mean, I'm happy for it all. We're a story-driven culture. Think about it. Most, most Christians will celebrate all of these other holidays. And if we don't celebrate them or honor them, they're, they're sometimes associated with certain ways of doing things in society that we kind of don't have a choice. Like we cannot go to the bank on those days. We can't just buck the system and be like, I won't celebrate this day. I'm going to the bank. Well, the bank's closed. Can't do it. And then you think about how holidays work for Christians in other ways. Like we have Christmas and Easter. And those would be the two days that most people honor. That's why Easter and Christmas, particularly Christmas Day, which only comes every, I think, seven years or so. Um, but, but Easter specifically is always, always the highest attended uh, church in the USA. Like the attendance. Matter of fact, in certain church organizations, you'll see that the one thing they brag about more than anything is church attendance on Easter Day, Easter Sunday. We're a story-driven culture of story-driven creatures who interpret life through story, and we do so within the context of time. Are you with me? Come on, are you with me? All right, we're good? All right. So here's the thing. We're going to get nerdy. All right, I need to get nerdy for a minute. All right, so, so stay with me. I believe Yahweh knew this about humanity. Yahweh is the name revealed by God to his people in the Old Testament. We call the Old Testament the Hebrew Scriptures. Okay, so for those who aren't familiar. I believe Yahweh knew this about humanity, so he gave his people what the what, what, his people we call the Israelites. He gave them a calendar. Everybody say calendar. And, and, but, but here's the thing. We've got, we got to do a little history. All right? So in the Hebrew Scriptures, they follow a lunar calendar. Okay, we know, do we know about the Gregorian calendar, how like our calendar got developed? Just know that it happened around 1500. It's not like society's always lived with this particular calendar that we, that we are formed by. Right? So, you know, our allegiance is to a 700-year-old, 600-year-old calendar. Right? Like we give it that much power in our life. In the Hebrew Scriptures, they follow a lunar calendar that runs from new moon to new moon, which is about 29 or 30 days. For example, today's date on the Jewish calendar is the 8th of Tevet in the year 5780. Sounds like a sci-fi film. The vet is the fourth month of their civil year, but the tenth month of their religious year, usually coinciding with parts of December and January. So if you were going to track the calendar for the Jews in accordance to your Bibles, say Bibles, that's how you would date time. So this isn't something that you know their Jewish community is doing now. This is actually how it worked. The calendar comes out of the law of Moses, and dates in the Bible are are in relation to that calendar. So the day runs from sundown to sundown. That's why in the creation narrative it says, "In the evening and the what morning were the first day." So so the way it works is in the Hebrew scriptures. Days run from sundown to sundown. So what we call Saturday evening was actually the beginning of what we would call what? Sunday. 
Now, the Jews had a seven-day week, which is based on the seven days of creation and the Sabbath. And in the Scripture, days are numbered in relation to the Sabbath. Have you ever noticed that? In the New Testament especially, in the Christian Scriptures, days are numbered in relation to the Sabbath. Stay with me, because it's important. Especially for those of us who've been struggling with things like Epiphany and Advent and all that. The Jews had this. So, so in the Scripture, numbered in relation to the Sabbath, the Christian Scriptures continue the pattern in numbering the days in relation to the Sabbath. It's why the, num- it's why the name Sunday is never mentioned in your Bible. You ever notice that? It's never mentioned as Sunday. And if it is mentioned as Sunday, it wasn't in the original language. That's what they're doing for our ears. That's why it's always like the day after Sabbath. Read it carefully. It's there. Matter of fact, our modern days are all named. Are you ready for this? They're all named for pagan gods. Did you know that? Yeah, for those of us who get all bent out of shape over Christmas, supposedly being a pagan holiday, and the Christians try to you know, hijack it for Christian purposes, we do that one every day of the week. Sunday literally means Saul, which is sun god. Monday is moon, which is for the moon god. Tuesday is Teu, which is the Anglo-Saxon name for Mars, the god of war. Wednesday means comes from the word Odin, or which is the supreme deity of the Anglo-Saxon Norse mythology. Thursday, which we all know because of the Avengers, thankfully. Thursday is named after who? Thor. That handsome fellow. Which is the Anglo-Saxon god. And then Friday. Yeah, right, Harvey. Frigga, which is probably my favorite. It's the Frigga weekend. See what I did there? That's the goddess wife of Odin. And then Saturday, of course, is named after Saturn, which is the Roman god of fun and feasting. <laughs> right? Right? Some of you are like, well, yes. So, like, we're completely formed by pagan names for our calendar. Are you with me? Now, I'm okay with that. Like, I, I'm not the guy who gets bent out of shape over, Merry Christmas! It's not Sunday. Do you imagine if we took that position? I will no longer call these days by their pagan names. I will start referring to them as the Bible does. What day is it? The fourth day after Sabbath. Write that down on an application. I'll meet you the fourth day after Sabbath. And then if you're military, it's like at 22 o'clock, which I still struggle with. I have never, right? <laughs> right? Like Alvin used it. I've never been able. I'll meet you at 2200. What? Like, what do you mean? I don't understand. In the Bible, including the Christian Scriptures, days are not given these names, but are numbered in relation to the Sabbath. And in the biblical calendar, there's no winter, spring, summer, and fall. Israel had two meteorological seasons, a long, warmer summer and a cooler, wetter winter. That was it. Israel's calendar had seasons... But they are not what we call winter, spring, summer, and fall. The seasons were, time, were actually designated as times and festivals. So stay with me. It's important. The seasons that the Jewish people, the seasons that the faith for which we are formed by, because we're formed by this faith, did not mark time based on seasons. It marked time based on festivals. Israel's calendar actually was marked by these festivals that celebrated the work of Yahweh as the creator and redeemer. Because every day they lived, they wanted to live in light of the story. They wanted to inhabit, say inhabit, their faith story. Their faith story, say their faith story. That's what they wanted to do. 
And the best way to inhabit the faith story was to mark calendar by that faith story. That's what Yahweh did. Yahweh commanded. As a matter of fact, let's look at the text. Uh, First Chronicles. And they shall stand every morning thanking and praising the Lord. And whenever burnt offerings are offered to the Lord on Sabbaths, new moons, and appointed festivals, translated seasons in some of your Bibles, according to the number required of them regularly before the Lord. First Chronicles 23.31. Our Second Chronicles 31.3. The contribution of the king from his own possessions was for the burnt offerings, the burnt offerings of morning and evening, and the burnt offerings for the Sabbaths, the new moons, and the appointed festivals, translated seasons, as it was written in the law of the Lord. This was a part of the law of God. You see this. You see this here. So the Lord spoke to Moses. This is Leviticus 23. This is where you'll learn about all the festivals and times. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed festivals, translated seasons, of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations, my appointed festivals. And what I'm trying to say, church, is these particular festivals and these convocations, that was their calendar. They lived and marked time by this calendar. And there were seven festivals that aligned with the seven creation, days of creation, which is why that's an important narrative. It was a Sabbath, the Passover, our unleavened bread, the first fruits, Pentecost weeks, trumpets, atonement, booze, tabernacles. Every one of these festivals told the story of God's redemption in their life. And this is how they marked time. How many weeks are we till we're in the fourth week of? We're in the seventh day after. That's how they marked time. And Moses declared to the people of Israel these appointed festivals of the Lord. This is how they lived their life, shaped by the calendar that told their faith story. So why go over all this? Well, we come from this heritage of faith that has been shaped and guided by keeping a calendar. And even though we as Christians are no longer commanded to keep that calendar, because we no longer live under that law, we live in the law of Christ, we can and still should learn from it. And that's why the early church created a calendar. See, the early church created a calendar in light of this narrative. The early church didn't create a calendar simply because they wanted to make life complicated. The early church didn't do it as some sort of Catholic conspiracy. Because, you know, that's how Protestants are. We like to blame everything on the Catholics. Oh, they had an agenda. No, they were, living off of the, they were living off of the narrative of their own story, which was God formed people by calendar. We should probably take a calendar too. And it should be organized by our own story because we are Christians. And so they did. The Israelites understood the totality of their being based on God's work. Their national and communal story, their politics, ethics, morality, business, economics, religion. It was not framed through categories. That was all under the banner of worshiper. There was no business and personal when you were a Yahweh worshiper. And frankly, in the early church, there was no business and personal either. That's just stuff we say. It's just, it's just in history. It's just there. And these seasons, these seasons they were to live in influenced them toward greater faithfulness. As they lived by the Scriptures and experienced the liberating wisdom of God, they lived wisely when they were faithful to the Scripture and shaped by these seasons and festivals, faithful to their calendar. But when they weren't faithful to these things, they lived foolishly. We aren't commanded to keep these days and seasons and holy convocations and festivals because God's entire story climaxed in Jesus. 
He is the embodiment of God's wisdom and the basis for how we understand life. But the early church learned from this understanding of Yahweh's heart and in that tradition formed a calendar that would change and shape the church because they did understand that the church was a holy nation living in the Babylons of society. They understood that the church was a particular people who's supposed to have its own politic because it has its, you know, its own king, its own government, its own understanding of these things. And they understood, guys, that to confess Jesus as Lord was to be reconciled to God and to purposefully enter into his story as participants. To follow Jesus is to have the character and purpose of our lives conformed to the character and purpose of His. We choose to trust His power within us so that we can deny ourselves to no longer live centered on ourselves as society encourages us, but to live in allegiance to Him who lived and died for us. We choose to listen to what He teaches, to do what He does, and to pursue His mission in the world rather than our own or someone else's. We commit to learning how to love God with our whole being and love our neighbors and our enemies as we love ourselves. And we get prepared to suffer and even to die in living this way because we hold on to the hope of resurrection. That's the gospel story. Like, that's the implications. And if we want to inhabit God's story and be changed by this, like changed into this life, then we have to think about how we are putting our mind and our body and our social experiences and environments together. If we want to inhabit God's story and have it inhabit and change us, we cannot do it through individualized efforts or occasional participation. It has to be a whole life, everything endeavor. And that's why Paul said, be careful to live your life, say it with me, wisely. Not foolishly. Ephesians 5, 15-17. He goes on to say, take advantage of what? Every opportunity because why? Read it. These are evil times. Because of this, read it with me. Say it with me. Don't be ignorant, but understand the Lord's will. We don't do that through individualized efforts on changing, and we don't do that through occasional participation in the Christian story. That's what I'm trying to say. That's what I've been trying to say. If you've been here for nine years, this is what I've been trying to say. When we started doing confessions and prayers of the people and all these different things, the elders and I, this is what we were trying to say. Started honoring Advent and all the different seasons of the calendar. This is what we're trying to say. Nobody trying to be like another church. <laughs> They're just trying to be faithful to the story. That's it. There's no... Backdoor agenda or motive. It was just how can we, God, how can we form a more faithful people? Like that is the heart's desire of this leadership. There is nothing more than that. It's always been that way. See, now I confess to you, I grew up in Churches of Christ. We didn't celebrate the Christian calendar. As a matter of fact, I grew up in the wing of Churches of Christ that didn't even celebrate Christmas as the birth of Christ. That was what denominational people like you guys did. We didn't even celebrate Easter as Resurrection Day. So you need to know that I grew up thoroughly secular in my understanding of Christianity. Now that's a sentence that shouldn't make sense. Thoroughly. I've learned since then that there are many reasons for that. 
much of which I'm not going to share with you. But I'm just trying to tell you, I didn't grow up with this Christian calendar, but when I discovered it, when I discovered what, I share, what I've shared with you about Israel, I began to wonder if God's intention could have some sort of work in the Spirit in the church today. And then I discovered this thing called the Christian calendar. Maybe that was the case. Maybe the Spirit took it on. And then I began to wonder if it could be helpful to reframe my own personal calendar with the Christian story as the dominant calendar rather than the American story as the dominant calendar. And I began to wonder if I could learn to treat time as the sacred gift that it is and inhabit it more consistently with my life and Christian faith. How I could train my mind and my body and redefine my social experiences and environments by surrendering them to tell the story of God and Christ. So my point in all of this is that we can be more intentional with our own story and go beyond scattered celebrations and memorials and holidays. We can embrace a long-standing Christian tradition and learn to live wisely and not foolishly by leaning into the wisdoms of the Christian story. We can choose to embrace the habit of living into each year marked and guided by the Christian story we've come to call the Christian calendar. And so here's how it works. So if you've got your worship guide, go to the cover. And then we're going to celebrate Eucharist. So the way the Christian calendar works is it's generally made up of three seasons. There's the cycle of light, the cycle of life, and the cycle of ordinary time. The cycle of light involves Advent, Christmas, and Epiphany. This is the time where we wait. This is the season where we wait with anticipation and expectation in the darkness and look for the light. And then the light climaxes when Christ is born. Are you with me so far? All right, details I think are in the um, um, version thing. The cycle of life, now that Christ has been, Christ is born and been revealed to the world, which is what we call epiphany. So we move from Advent, Christmas, epiphany. Now the cycle of life moves on. And epiphany becomes a season, an eight-week season, where we tend to the light because the light is our life. Because Jesus said, I am the what? Light of the world. He who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life, right? And so now we move into what we call the eight weeks of epiphany season. And then at that point, it, it, can, it converges onto the story of Jesus. So it follows the story of Jesus, epiphany does. So if you think about it, you read your Bible in accordance to the season. So we start with the prophets in Advent and to Christmas. That's why we do the series is what we do. If you think about this, this, is, this explains the preaching that goes on around here except for the fact that I usually buy my sermons from rickwarren.com. So we, we, go, we go Advent, Christmas, Epiphany, which focuses on the life of Jesus and the wisdom of God, the light of God in Christ. And then we move into the cycle of life, which begins at Lent, where we then enter into a realization of the frailty of humanity. That's why Ash Wednesday exists. Ash Wednesday seems dark for those of us who've never done it, but, but why do you think there's ashes? Anybody want to guess? Ashes to ashes and dust to dust. Ashes are put on the forehead on Wednesday for fasting because it's supposed to be a somber remembrance that we all going to die. That life is frail. Bodies get old. And, I, and for those of us who don't like, you know, dealing with things, obviously we're not doing it, right? Like, that's how, like, I know I'm going to die. So we try to escape knowing we're going to die because, you know, everybody wants to go to heaven. Nobody wants to die kind of thing. So it's like, so we just don't want to deal. But Ash Wednesday is supposed to be this place of sobriety where we remember why, though. We don't just remember we're going to die. We remember why we're going to die because the reign of sin and death is at work in the world, man. That's why death happens. Because it's anti-God. Everybody say anti-God. That's what death is every time. 
It's anti-life. And Ash Wednesday is to remember that. And then we move into Lent, which is supposed to be the season where we decide we're going to fast and we're going to pray and we're going to reorient our life toward the Christ who's about to be crucified. And then Holy Week comes through Palm Sunday. And we literally journey through that week. And then our church sets up the Stations of the Cross so we can do that. And then we live through that. We don't wait. We don't move on. We don't go ahead and get Jesus out of the tomb because it makes us uncomfortable. We let Him stay in the tomb like a Holy Saturday. And Holy Saturday comes where we live in the in-between, where we realize... That this is the time where we wonder if God really is fulfilling His promises. Remember what the disciples had to do on Holy Saturday? Where they had to wait from crucifixion to resurrection? And they just had to wait there in the upper room filled with fear, lamenting, wondering if God was even true? That's how life is. And what I'm trying to say is the Christian calendar can give voice to what we often feel. It organizes our lives so that we don't have to be a hot mess and live as if every day is Holy Saturday. You know why? Because every day isn't Holy Saturday. There is Resurrection Sunday. Thank you for that, Susie. And thank you for being kind about it. <laughs> Thanks. You're welcome for the amen, Fred. That'll be $5. That's, that's how we, we do it. We live in this resurrection. And then we celebrate resurrection. Now, here's the thing that you don't know about the Christian calendar because we barely do a shared meal well around here. How about that for passive-aggressive? But here's what I'm trying to say. The Christian calendar is supposed to be celebrated with parties. Raise your hand if you like the party. I'm with you, Greg. I'm kind of like, it depends on my day. But that's a church should party. But we got to have people bring food to the party and come to the party. I'm not going to go on a shared meal spill, but all I'm saying is that these seasons usually culminate in climax in festivals and parties. How cool would that be if we partied a little bit more? Raise your hand if you'd like to party more as a church. Well, then bring some food. Like, the, <laughs> then let's party. Then show up when we throw one, right? Like, like, so, like, really, like, let's party more as a church for crying out loud. Oh, yeah, let's do it. Greg and I'll sit in the room by ourselves, but come, everybody else party. Like, the, the, and then we go through, then after that, we go through cycle ordinary time. Ordinary time doesn't mean that everything's just ordinary and bored, it means ordinal, which means numbered. This is the season that's numbered. This is the season that doesn't have festivals and parties because this is the season that remembers that culminates in Pentecost Sunday where the church is born out of Resurrection Sunday and out of Ascension Sunday, out of Trinity Sunday, into Pentecost Sunday where the church is born and where we live now what we know to be the Christian life powered by the Spirit of God. And then we study the epistles and the book of Acts and all these different things and we go to that. For four years, this church has flirted with the calendar, whether you know it or not. And I have preached based on this. Our staff calendar is marked with these Sundays. The Sundays that we specifically observe are Advent Sundays, Epiphany Sunday, Easter Sunday, Pentecost Sunday, Ascension Sunday, Trinity Sunday, and Christ the King Sunday. These are the Sundays that we specifically observe. And it does, it does things for me. Let me tell you what it does as a pastor. It makes sure that every year I preach on Pentecost, every year I preach on the Ascension, every year I preach on the Trinity, every year I preach on the kingship of Jesus. So as a pastor, it's very important that I can use this calendar because it reminds me not to hobby ride all the things that I think are important for us and not miss the story of God in us. Does that make sense to you? We're shaped by the story. Think about what would happen if we lived this way every year. Think about what would happen if you organized your home around this every year. If you took this seriously. If you took this just as seriously as you do Mother's Day. Father's Day. Birthday. Fourth of July, Memorial Day. Think about how it would form us as an individual people and as a community if we took it that seriously. 
Just think about the possibility. What would it do? Would it reorganize our priorities? Would it reorganize our habits? Would we, would we start saying no to some things we usually say yes to and yes to things that we may sometimes say no to? Would we take on different rhythms and practices as individuals and families? Would we start treating others differently because of the new priorities, rhythms, and practices? I think it would. It's changed me. It's changed my family. It's changed how I parent. Parents, this changes how I parent my son. This changes how we welcome a 17-year-old that I didn't parent for 16 years into my home. This changes how I try to love my wife. This changes how I try to pastor and love you, my neighbors, my enemies. The Christian calendar, with its deep connection to the Christian story, celebrates in our present experience what has already happened and what we believe will happen. The birth, ministry, suffering, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. The reign of King Jesus in glory and lordship of God over all things. We might just find that in keeping these holy days and celebrations, God may work in us through them and in our world through us. I believe that we can inhabit time more wisely. And my encouragement to you is to consider inhabiting time within the wisdom of the Christian story. And to do that would be to take a look at this calendar and begin to decide how you can begin to shape your understanding of time and your understanding of life around your understanding of the story. Now do me a favor. Don't like run out and start all of a sudden becoming like the, the poster child of the Christian calendar and like wanting to keep everything. You'll die the death of a thousand fails. Choose a season or two. So like for like I've said for like I've said to you before, for the season of Epiphany, the practices we use um, during the school season is every every morning when we wake up, we'll light a candle. And we'll remember the light of Christ revealed to us. And I'll remind my son that wherever he goes, he can only see if he sees Jesus. And what does that mean? And we talk about that and we do our devotional every morning. And we light a candle. It's an embodied practice. Just like the Eucharist is an embodied practice. Because God knows we need embodied practices. We need more than just to be told. We need to experience. So we're not just told that Christ's body was given for us and his blood was spilled for us. We are given a, an embodied experience where we experience the body and the blood of Christ that was given and poured for us. We don't aren't just told that we were liberated by God's love. We are given an embodied practice to remember We've been liberated by God's love. So I commend this to you as brothers and sisters in Christ as we come to the table to celebrate the one who knows us best and loves us most and reminds us of who we are.